But for now, let's continue our study in the book of Romans, chapter 1. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 18 to 21a. And the word of God reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or Give thanks to him. Holy Father, as we now move in the order of service to the proclamation of your truth, I ask that you might impart to me your strength and power to proclaim this truth and give your people ears to hear. And for anyone who is here this morning, opposed to you, resistant of you, that they would have eyes to clearly see you are Lord God Almighty, that you rule and reign, you are the Almighty and the eternal judge. May their hearts be transformed this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing to work our way through Paul's epistle to the Romans, and last time Paul announced the theme of this entire letter, and the theme basically is verse 16 and 17 that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of the gospel. But today we begin the first section, and everything before verse 18 is really introductory. Um, But this text here is foundational to understanding the divine revelation of God and his gospel. There is no doubt a sudden change here in Paul's tone from verses 16 and 17, here now into verse 18, having just mentioned the celebrated reality of justification by faith alone, that it is only by faith alone that anyone is justified, that anyone can be declared free from all blame. He transitions now to the wrath of God. It's quite a transition, is it not? And now he begins a long section that runs all the way to chapter 3, And verse 20, where he presents the bad news, beloved. Knowing that unless you understand the bad news, there is no way you can possibly understand or appreciate the good news. Right? You cannot present the good news gospel of Jesus Christ without first presenting, proclaiming the bad news. Or otherwise it would be not good news. 
So in order to understand what we will learn in verse 18 is to know what Paul said in verse 17. And he tells us that one of the things that causes his heart to rejoice, the thing that causes such a deep-rooted thankfulness within him as he writes the church in Rome, a people for whom he has never met, he says, I thank God for your faith. In that, faith is a gift. When this guy thinks about the gospel and the righteousness revealed by way of the gospel, he drops to his knees in thanksgiving. And it's not merely that the the grace, mercy, and love of God is revealed, although uh, those things are true, and Paul will develop the reality of all of that throughout this epistle. But for now, he is stating in his thesis the fact that he rejoices in the gospel that it is the righteousness of God granted to those who believe by faith. This is what moves Paul. I mean, this is why he's so thankful. This is why he's so joyful. And this, beloved, if you know the story of Paul, is why he is always content, regardless of the circumstances that invade his life. Paul, having been trained up as a Pharisee, uh, was zealously pursuing the extermination of all of those who proclaimed to be of the way. In other words, Christians. He thought himself to be pleasing God. He thought that he was actually gaining the favor of God by exterminating Christians, ridding the world in his mind of blasphemers and heretics. That's what weird religion does. It goes on the attack. But he was met by the Lord Jesus Christ While en route to arrest Christians, en route to throw them into prison, he was met by the the Lord on the road to Damascus, and it was revealed that every persecution that he enacted upon Christians was enacted upon Christ himself. He said, Paul, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. We are one in Christ, amen? So this exposed Paul for what he really was, a self-righteous, religious traditionalist, brought to his knees, blinded for three days, transformed. This man who was set apart to be a Pharisee is now the Apostle Paul who writes this letter to the church in Rome. He understands now that any religious deeds of his own were nothing but filthy rags. Now, he knows he's forgiven. He knows he's a recipient of grace, but Paul also knows that God didn't merely forget Paul's sins. He didn't sweep them under the rug, but he dealt with those sins directly. That Christ bore Paul's sin on the cross. You see, Paul understands that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever believes shall be saved. This is a recipient of grace writing this letter. That Christ lived the life that Paul ought to have lived. That Christ died the death Paul ought to have died. This man understands this. This man is thankful that God has credited to Paul, that God has credited to you, anyone who is in Christ, the very righteousness of his beloved son, of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that he is so thankful 
about. Which reveals to every person throughout all time that your own righteousness will not suffice as you stand before this holy God. It will not do. It requires, as the reformers called it, an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes from outside of us. It must be Christ's very own righteousness transferred to us, obtained by us according to his grace. And that is what Paul's heart rejoices over, beloved. That's why we're here rejoicing this morning. Right? You, you, you rejoice by faith. You may come in feeling grumpy, but you're rejoicing by faith because of this reality. The righteousness of Christ imparted, imputed to you, received by faith. Now, understanding that and the thankfulness of Paul will help us understand what he says today in verses 18 to 21a and in the weeks following. Paul is thankful to God for the faith of these Roman Christians who he longs to see. In order for them to rightly understand this glorious gospel, they have to rightly understand God. In order for us to continue to understand the gospel, we must rightly understand the God of the gospel, for he alone saves. Right? We're a saved people, amen? People say, brother, are you saved? Well, saved from what? What are we saved from? We're saved from God. You are saved by God from God. You are saved by God from God's wrath. And that's our first point. God's wrath against sin. Raging mad against sin. That's what you're saved from. Now, the gospel makes no sense without understanding man's sin without understanding God's wrath. Apart from God's wrath, apart from sin, the gospel doesn't add up. It's meaningless. The salvation of, the the gospel message, rather, of salvation means nothing unless we understand God and his wrath. It's an irrelevant message. It might sound nice, but it's not significant. Because the gospel is the story of God's gracious, amazing redemption of a people, a delivered people, a purchased people. From what? From his wrath. Over and against our sin. How then will anyone understand God's love unless they first understand his hatred? And God does indeed hate. How can we understand his grace without understanding the law? How can we understand the forgiveness of sins without understanding the penalty for sin? Divine love without divine hatred. See, God's attributes are perfectly balanced, beloved, in divine perfection, and they must must be preached as such. God is perfect in his love. He is also perfect in his holiness. He is also perfect in his justice. This is what Paul's declaring for us this morning. And the Apostle Paul knows that it makes no sense to tell us the good news unless we we fully apprehend and appreciate the bad. And we do appreciate the bad. So from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to make sure that we understand this bad news. 
So before he ever gets to elaborating on the glorious truths introduced to us thus far, only in verses 16 and 17, he spends almost three chapters making sure that we appreciate just what it is that God is saving us from. Amen? Boy, will it make you thankful. If you have not embraced this before, if you do not realize this, this is what will drop you to your knees in utter thankfulness for the price that was paid for you. There's a great price that was paid for your redemption. Now, we live in a day in a culture whose people are uncomfortable with the idea of depravity and a people who are almost certainly uncomfortable with the idea of God being wrathful. Hopefully, if you're here this morning, if that is you, you will have a change of heart by the time we get to chapter 3. So the result of this is that the gospel of the bad news is under assault today. And again, how can you understand and embrace the good unless you first know and understand and embrace the bad? You'll never be thankful without it. It's even popular for some Christians in our day to refuse to teach it to their own darling children. But when a child is old enough, beloved, we must teach them of the wrath of God so that they will grow to appreciate and not have a flippant attitude. Well, I'm God's covenant child having a flippant attitude about salvation when they know not the cost and the price that was paid by the Son to make them right and righteous. There's a lot of professing pastors and theologians who work very hard to make sure that church attendees in our day don't feel uncomfortable. They're reluctant to confront those who very well may not be saved. This must be proclaimed boldly. So it has become somewhat of an orthodox hobby in our day to uh, make fun of what we refer to as hellfire and brimstone preachers, right? You ever heard that? Oh, he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Well, the fact of the matter is the the basic truth heralded by those who are not afraid and proclaim this to pew-sitters in our day or any other day about God's judgment is not only entirely biblical, it is incredibly Pauline, okay? The Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle of Grace, he doesn't hesitate to preach on the wrath of God, as we shall see. He makes clear that God's righteous wrath is revealed against all sin and all sinners, Notice verse 18. Paul says God's righteous wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which is to say against all sin and all sinners. So he begins here so that the Romans and all hearers of all time understand why the gospel is necessary. And notice the parallel here, beloved, in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17 in God's gospel... The righteousness of God is what? Revealed. In verse 18, in God's justice, the wrath of God is revealed. So, he kind of primes the pump, doesn't he, in verses 16 and 17. The righteousness of God provided us in Christ, but the reason it was provided is because the wrath of God has been revealed clearly. Now, this word wrath is a word that doesn't mean that God is simply, you know, somewhat irritated with sin 
or annoyed or merely aggravated. His wrath here means a violent passion without restraint. The word is orge from where we get our English word orgy. In other words, God is passionately outraged. Orgy defines people who, who have unrestrained passions. And here, God is fuming without restraint. That's the idea over sin. He's enraged against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here now, the creator is moved in wrath against his ungodly, unrighteous creatures. And all of mankind is made in the image of their creator, in the image of God. And they have rebelled, indicating a lack of God-centeredness here of God-centeredness in our attitudes, in our actions, in our priorities, demonstrating an actual contempt for God himself, a resistance, a hatred. So this says he's raging mad, not chiefly, beloved, because of man's ungodliness and unrighteousness or his irreverence. Um, These are uh, generic terms that cover a multitude of sins. But there's one overarching sin that produces all the rest. So the first point is God's wrath against sin, which moves us to our second point, the sin of God's wrath. Notice, who, verse 18, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. So the very thing described as provoking or igniting, so to speak, God's wrath, is men suppressing the truth of God in their minds. This is a word that can be translated to obscure the truth, or to incarcerate the truth, to repress it, to suppress it, or to hold it down. Now, a good illustration of this would be if you could imagine yourself standing in the shallow end of a pool, waist-deep in water, You take a volleyball and you attempt to hold it down underwater and balance that thing as you move about. And as you move about, the pressure that is created by the water wants to push the ball to the surface so it wants to flip out of one side or the other of your hand. Try it next time you're in a pool. That's kind of the idea that's being described. Man attempts to resist or drive the truth of the knowledge of God out of our minds where truth itself continues to push back up into our minds the reality of this God in whose image we are made. So the suppression of the truth implies knowledge of the truth, doesn't it? In other words, everybody believes in God, as we shall see. Everybody. Richard Lenski comments on this, and he said, whenever the truth starts to exert itself and makes them feel uneasy in their moral nature, they hold it down, suppressing it. Some drown its voice by rushing into their immoralities. Others strangle the disturbing voice by argument and by denial. End quote. So what kind of truth is Paul referring to here? That's the question. Notice he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold it down. This is the truth of God in creation known, beloved, as general revelation. The general revelation or the natural revelation of God. That's what it's known as in theology. It's general because it's made known to everybody, everywhere, at all time, throughout all time. 
There is not one human being that does not know in their mind that God exists. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God proclaims from the heavens there is a creator by that which is made. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It's the scripture I opened with this morning. The heavens declare his glory. The heavens declare his existence. The sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, they all declare the existence of this creator. Notice verse 19. For what can be known about God is what? Look at that. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God's wrath is revealed because what may be made known about him is plain. It's clear. It's a word that means to make or to render apparent, to see with clarity that he exists. So the testimony of God to his own nature is plainly evident, the scripture says, every second of every day. So explaining in verse 19 the reason for his wrath that men suppress the truth of God's existence. They hold it down. So this tells us that God's wrath is justified because we know God and yet are ungodly. This is, of course, before one is redeemed. God's wrath is justified because he is known among all peoples by that which is made. Look look at what he says here. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Which is to say, beloved, there's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. Truly, they might claim to be atheistic, but according to the scripture, they truly do believe. But they hate God and they suppress the truth of God in their conscience. They try to push it out of their mind. No one can claim ignorance, which means there's no such thing as an agnostic. One who says, well, we can't really know from where we get the word ignorance or ignoramus. There's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an agnostic. Everyone knows God because God has made himself evident to all by way of general revelation. All men, all women have more than just a bare awareness of his existence which tells us that all men are guilty before God. So the suppression he talks about in verse 18 is completely, therefore, blameworthy. That's the point that Paul is driving home. No one can suppress something they do not have, amen? And everyone has general revelation of the creator of this universe. Everybody. So the next time one of your friends who claims to be an atheist, you can tell him you're not, you, you, you truly do believe. You're just suppressing the truth by that which has been made, created. Now, the most striking example that I have ever read about God's existence being made plain is by that of uh, Helen Keller, the girl who was born blind and deaf. You remember the story? Well, when finally a teacher was found by the name of Ann Sullivan who could begin to communicate to her, she called on Philip Brooks, Pastor Philip Brooks, to explain to her the concept of God and the Lord's gospel. So once Anne had spent all these months and years 
um, developing um, communication patterns with Helen. This is what Helen is said to have said when Philip Brooks came to talk about God. Oh, I knew him. I knew there was a God. I did not know what to call him. But I, I did not know his name, but I knew that he was the truth. Someone born deaf and blind, which tells us, beloved, that there is an innate truth within the hearts and minds of human beings to the fact that God exists. So suppressing the general revelation or the general knowledge of God, of this truth, makes everybody liable for their sin. They're guilty. Paul is saying, we know. We know and we still do not worship. We still do not obey. We still do not love God. And this, of course, is in the stage before one is granted the special revelation of God to become a Christian. No one become, as we will see, no one can become a Christian by way of natural revelation. It takes the special revelation of God for which you in Christ are recipients of. We know this truth, general revelation. We rebel against this truth. So that is to say that sin is complete soul rebellion against God. Paul lays the groundwork here for a holy God who's rejected by those made in his image. So it's not that professed atheists don't know about God. They simply hate God. Or they wouldn't spend so much time writing so many books. If he didn't exist, it'd be a waste of their time and their great intellect. But they hate him. That's why they write against him, you see. People who say, well, I believe in a God, just not the God of the Bible that you believe in. That's good for you, and I'm glad it's good for you, but that's not good for me. Well, they hate God, too. And as we'll learn in the coming weeks, they make God in their own image. And they worship creatures and creeping things and creation instead of the creator. So Paul's argument, beloved, is that mankind is inexcusable because man is not left in utter ignorance. Everybody knows. Often people will say, you know this is coming. What happens to the innocent Africa, innocent tribal African, right? Or what happens to the innocent native in the deep jungles of South America? Well, let me answer that for you. They're not innocent. They're guilty. Every man, woman, and child stands guilty under God's wrath, knowing that he exists. So Paul's answer is quick, and he says there's nobody who doesn't know. They all know. And there's certainly no one who's innocent, amen? Nobody's innocent. They're already condemned. You see the beauty of salvation? Just think of this room, all these people in this room. It represents all of the world. And all of the world at the same time is under the condemnation of God. But God in his grace reaches out and grants special revelatory truth of himself by way of the gospel that enables you to believe about the God that has naturally revealed himself through creation and the redemption that was paid for you. That's grace. Because who out of this whole group deserves in the world to be saved? Nobody, because we're all guilty against the God who's holy, holy, holy. Tells you something about the price that was paid on Calvary's cross, amen? 
Nobody's innocent. There is no innocent African tribal member running around with a bone in his nose. They're all guilty. We're already under his wrath, rejecting the one in whose image we're made. So Paul says clearly, they already know God, but they choose not to worship him or to revere him or obey him or believe him. They suppress his truth in their unrighteousness. They suppress his indirect revelation. Paul says, therefore, God's wrath is justified. So in defining man's awareness of God, Paul will proceed to develop the theology of the law of conscience. For instance, when we get to chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. In other words, everyone looks right and left before they steal something that's not theirs. Right? doesn't matter where they live, they look right and they look left. It's innate. They know. Moses, before it was revealed, before God revealed himself at the burning bush, before he killed the Egyptian, what did he do? He looked this way and he looked that away. He killed the guy and then what did he do? He buried him in the sand. And then in fear he ran. And that's what sin does. It causes fear and we run away from the creator, suppressing that truth. So, but here he begins his argument by declaring God's person and power through nature. He's going to develop this throughout chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Notice verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. Since creation, the sun, the moons, the stars, beloved, every beautiful sunset, every rainstorm, the four seasons, all point to the work, the creative power, and the sustaining power of their creator. They have no excuse. And this testimony will not cease. This testimony will declare itself until he comes again and and, and restores what we now live in with a new heaven and a new earth. Remember God's covenant with Noah? Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. In other words, his invisible attributes, his divine nature, are clearly seen throughout all time. Now, notice the characteristics involved here in in, in the creation that bears clear witness of its maker. Notice this. Uh, The first thing is the word plain in verse 19. It implies a clear testimony set before the eyes of men. That's the first thing. It's plain. Number two, it's clearly perceived by them in verse 20. So God makes it plain, and God is declaring that they clearly perceive it. Verse 20, general revelation does not end with mere awareness, but includes reflection. God is telling us that everybody reflects upon these things. Everybody lays their head down in the pillow at night and wonders about these things which concludes that there's a creator. And number three is this constant testimony to all peoples of all times. He says, since the creation of the world, all people of all time have this testimony. 
natural revelation. And number four, notice, no man or woman will stand with an excuse. That's the fourth thing, no no excuse. He says, not only is God's existence made known through creation, but his very nature, his eternality, his power is also made known through creation. I mean, you can actually see something, the scripture says, of his attributes, of his wisdom, of his perfection, of his goodness, his judgment, his power. All you have to do is look around. After all, the earth didn't create itself. Amen? Then you have to come up with some weird story. From, from glob floating around, you know, to some monkey somewhere. I mean, come on, are you serious? It's not hidden. Man sees it. He receives it, but he suppresses it. He holds it down. And then Paul, it's interesting, he borrows language here from the, the, the law courts of his day. He says there, without excuse, anapologetos is the word, which is a very interesting word. It's a, technic, it's a technical Greco-Roman law term. It's giving an apologias, giving a response or standing with a defense. That's the idea. So if you were accused of a crime and you would have to stand before judge and jury, you would be required to give a defense, an apologias. And if you're unable to defend yourself, you were said to be unapologeos, without an excuse, guilty. Guilty. Without defense, without an excuse. In other words, no one will have anything to say for themselves on Judgment Day who've rejected this creator. So then general revelation is sufficient to make man responsible, beloved, but general revelation by itself is not enough or sufficient enough to accomplish salvation. That takes special revelation. So general revelation reveals the fact that God doesn't indeed exist and man is altogether accountable. And a lot of people think that they're going to argue with God or give him a piece of their mind on that day. You ever heard anybody say that? I've heard people say terrible things about that day. You're going to spit in his face? Is that what you say? They've already spit in his face. You stand condemned now, but let me tell you the gospel truth of the good news. Though you stand condemned, he came to be spit upon. He came to be mocked. He came and had a bag put over his head and was beaten beyond recognition and then nailed to a Roman cross. And he said all the while, no man takes my life, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. You're going to spit in his face? I don't think so. Humble your heart before him now and he'll save you. You see, it's the power of the gospel. Everybody's guilty as they suppress this general revelatory truth that God does exist. Atheist, right. Right. 
Paul says they've seen, they've known, but they suppress this truth. You see, beloved, we preach the gospel because all of mankind is already guilty. They're already condemned. And the only way to be rescued from this wrath is through the special revelation that comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that takes that truth and grants them the ability to believe. Amen? That's why it's so powerful, man. And that is power. That's dunamis power. Dynamite power. Holy Spirit power. And you can't proclaim the good news without first proclaiming the bad news. Having been created in the image of God, they deny him, are ungodly, want to be ungodly. Okay, so where does this all begin? And this is our third and final point. Notice the basis of the sin warranting God's wrath. Verse 21. This is kind of startling. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, after making it clear that God has revealed himself to mankind by way of creation, Paul goes on to assert that all people are indeed without excuse when it comes to our responsibility to know and worship the creator. And the basis for Paul's indictment for unbelief and dishonor of God is quite frankly, bottom line, thanklessness of the creature. Thanklessness. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now, to honor God as God naturally leads to thanksgiving. Amen? It leads to a thankful heart. It produces a thankful heart. To honor him is to recognize him. To recognize him is to honor him and the provision that he grants us. The benevolence, the care, his infinite love. Just to give us breath every day. And to fail in thankfulness is to fail in honoring God as God. And it's the biblical description... If you look throughout the Bible, it is the the biblical description of a fallen, sinful mankind. You think about Adam and Eve. We'll go back to our first parents, right? Having been given indescribable abundance in the Garden of Eden, they insisted to pursue what they deemed best for themselves. This is an unfallen people at this point. Rather than thanking God in obedience for what he declared to be right and best for them. So can we not conclude, it's just kind of, you know, thinking through this, can we not conclude that the lack of thankfulness was the basis, perhaps, of their sin? Cain's sin of murdering Abel was the result of jealousy and envy of Abel's sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving that Abel brought before the Lord, and Cain was jealous, and he murdered his brother, shed his blood right there in the field. The very thing for which Cain lacked thankfulness. So ingratitude is so dangerous, it is so deadly, because it is based on willful unawareness of Almighty God. The most basic truth about God that he is almighty, that he is creator, that he is all-powerful. And we're related to him as his creatures, made in his image. 
He is our creator. So every breath that we have, every breath that unbelievers had is from God. The food that unbelievers have is from God. Their clothing, their children, their homes, their jobs, everything good is from God. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Os Guinness, who, who I've read many of his books, highly recommend him, anything you can get from Os Guinness. He refers to Romans 121 as a sober reminder that, and I quote, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. The man or woman of faith is the one who gives thanks. Unbelief, on the other hand, has a short and ungrateful memory, end quote. So thankfulness, beloved, and truth suppression causes one, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, to sink into this downward spiral of futility. And that's what Paul is showing us. He's showing us where God's wrath begins. He's showing us why the gospel was so costly, so precious, so great, so grand, and that it took the Son of God, the righteous one, to purchase a possession of people. He begins with God's wrath. He's going to show us that there's no one who stands outside of this indictment. Nobody is innocent. You talk about Gentiles, you talk about Jews, you talk about the people who are morally upright, who look at the morally downtrodden is somebody that I'm glad I'm not like. And he's going to say, you're all guilty. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And it all begins here with the wrath of God. So people will sink to this downward spiral of futility. They begin by doubting things about God. See where it begins? They doubt, ah, I don't know if it's really true. I believed it when I was a kid, but not so now. No, you're only growing more and more in your doubt to hate him. So it leads from doubt about God to greater rebellion against God, and they receive a calcified heart. Hardened hearts, it says, of darkness. Are you not glad you're saved? What have you been delivered from? Downward spiral into futility to where God, as we will see, turns the sinner over to himself and his resistant thinking and opposition to God. And God just leaves him alone. What a ter- are, you not glad, are you not delighted and glad that God didn't leave you alone? And if you're here this morning, you're condemned. If you're outside of Christ, you're guilty. You can say you don't believe him or believe in him. You're guilty. You believe him. You know he's real. You must have Christ to be saved. And you downward spiral this calcified heart and they become the proverbial fool of of Psalm 14 and 54, I think it is. It's the fool that says in his heart there is what? That there is no God. Actually denying God, refusing to honor him, refusing to thank him. So the problem that people face, beloved, is not that God does not exist, but rather that he does. 
And the fact that they suppress the reality is proof that they despise the fact that he is. They hate him. So mankind left to himself as a God-hater, it's not that they don't or can't believe, it's that they won't. And unless the grace of God, as I said, in Christ is revealed through the special revelatory truth of God the Holy Spirit, the gospel, and his word, they can't believe. That's why faith is a gift. Well, that's paradox. That's right. (laughs) It is paradoxical paradoxical reality. It is a seeming contradiction. But God is God, and we are are finite. Amen? And we must entrust ourselves to what the, the whole counsel of God teaches. But I'll tell you something about the wrath of God. Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. And so the longer he pulls it back, the deeper it's been said that the arrow plunges when he releases it. Who can bear this kind of wrath? You know, those of you in home groups... I love our home groups. I visited one this week. It was great. You were reminded this week in your study that God's grace is not infinite. Okay? God is indeed gracious, and he himself is infinite. But as we experience the grace of God, this infinite God, as a believer, his grace lasts forever. But to the world of the unredeemed, his grace is not infinite. It runs its course. And when he releases the bow and plunges the sword and drops the axe, they're done. See the urgency of the gospel? You see what he's declaring? This is the urgency to proclaim this truth, the only one that can deliver people from this place, from this position. Paul says, this is why the good news is so good to me. My head was on the chopping block, readied and deserving of a final axe blow of judgment. And he met me on the road, and he revealed himself to me. Ah, the righteous shall live by what? Works? No, faith in the righteous one. See, the urgency of the gospel is justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, because God's judgment leads to eternal wrath of God in hell to be suffered all alone. There's no party in hell for those who reject God. I'll be partying with my friends. No, you won't. If you remain where you are without knowing Christ, you'll be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth all alone, gnashing your teeth in hatred against the one that you resisted while you were on the earth. The righteous shall live by faith. The only way out of the just verdict of God is the, the divine act of God through Jesus Christ, his son. That's it. Because you see, beloved, that is why in verse 17 we're given the introduction, the righteous of God is revealed, righteousness of God is revealed through faith in the Son. Because you see, the Son came to absorb all of this wrath and to absolve all of this wrath. And for all who place their faith and trust in the righteous one will never face this Wrath, Jesus bore it all, and unto him what? We owe. Worship, praise, and grateful hearts. That's the gospel. 
That's the righteousness that's alien to us. That's the righteousness received by faith alone. That's the righteousness that comes from outside of us. That's the good news that comes not from within us, but from outside of us. No one will escape. Every human being needs a righteousness that they themselves cannot provide. And everyone's guilty. So announcing, to announce the good news of the gospel, do you see, beloved, for which Paul is so thankful? He must declare, he must denote, and he must define with utter clarity the bad news. Don't ever get tired of hearing the bad news because you won't be more thankful for the good day by day. Amen? And may we be a thankful people. One writer says this, The wrath of God is a phrase that should chill the blood of an individual who does not know that it has been stilled forever and that there's a way to avoid it. And the way is Jesus Christ, as I just said, who absorbed the wrath and removed it, satisfying the Father completely. Do you know him this morning? Have you personally placed your faith and your trust in the righteous one, Jesus Christ? For the righteous shall live by faith. You must repent and you must believe because every person is guilty and the only refuge from guilt is the forgiveness and the righteousness of God and it is only found in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He removes the wrath. Amen. Come to him today. And if you need prayer, you can see me at the door and I can point you to someone that can pray with you if I can't myself at the moment. Amen. May we be a thankful people for the price that was paid. Father, we do thank you. We praise your holy name for you are holy, holy, holy. For the wrath of God has been revealed from the creation from the beginning of time against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us from a place of bearing witness of the general revelation of you, our creator, to the special revelation of the sacrifice and the crushing of your own son, Jesus Christ, giving us the Holy Spirit and enabling us to embrace and receive you by faith and a righteousness provided us that does not come from within us, but from you, from the throne, to the cross, and to the cross, to the grave, to the grave, to the right hand of authority, our Lord and our Savior who reigns and rules now and forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. For anyone who may have walked in here this morning who is trying to convince themselves that you don't exist, I pray that you'll crush them Lord, under the weighty hand of conviction and show them the way of your son, that they need to be perfectly righteous, that they must be perfectly righteous, that they would receive the gift of your son and his righteousness by faith alone, for your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.